0: I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit Think.
1: All right, well, Sarah, this is a show I have been excited for us to talk about for a while, and your schedule finally allowed you (laughs) to have time to watch it, right? Uh, Also, I'm just going (laughs) to say right now, it is dinner time here in the household of Alicia, so you might see some pets munching around in the background. You might see a toddler zoom past, helping out. But we are we are here mid food. So anyway, uh, today we're going to talk about Queen Charlotte, which I mean has some very beautiful displays, not only of wigs but also some beautiful table spreads. So fitting to talk about around dinner time. <laughs> but uh, this is a show that is available currently on Netflix. Sarah and I, as I think so many of us were, were fans of Bridgerton. For more than just the steamy scenes, I think there's actually a beautiful story and a really interesting reclaiming of essentially a a smut romance genre. And zero shame for people who enjoy that genre. Uh, But then I think Queen Charlotte takes that universe and expands it in so many profound ways, which I think we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this idea of like the real history that inspired this show, right? And we're going to talk about uh, the the mental health <clears throat> elements of the show, both I think which are really really powerful and important to address as we think about Queen Charlotte in the Bridgerton universe as a whole. So, Sarah, <clears throat> so start us off. King George and Queen Charlotte were real people in history. If we're th- for those of us who know the show, tell us a bit about their real history. Let's kind of go from there.
0: Okay. So yeah, I did have to wait until my husband and my daughter were gone for a whole weekend so that I had time just to binge when my son was playing video games. And I was like, well, then, I'm going to do laundry and I'm going to watch Queen Charlotte. Um, And as I do, when I'm watching something that's even remotely based on history, I started doing a deep dive because I was like, I need to know, is this stuff actually true? Because you know from the get-go that it's not 100% true, even though like they have this disclaimer at the beginning that there are some things that are true about this story, right? But because they take this kind of great experiment alternative lens to it, like what if King George had married a woman who was black as opposed to just a foreigner from Germany? How would that have changed the way British society looked and how racism was dealt with in British society? So that was an interesting thought experiment, and they were doing this thought experiment with the whole show. And it also made Bridgerton make a lot more sense. Because as I was watching Bridgerton, I was like, oh, okay, there's a backstory here.
1: There's a there's a depth, right, that expands all that. And can we just acknowledge real quick
0: that it didn't just come out of nowhere? Right.
1: Can we acknowledge real quick, I think you and I were, as we were prepping for this show, we were talking about, especially in Europe as a whole, this idea of like foreigners in Europe feels that isn't really a thing anymore. Like, people in Europe kind of look like people in Europe. So what this show has added, along with the alternate history element, is it's adding in this idea of a visual difference in Charlotte, specifically, by giving us the lens of her race and and complicating that in the way that we, as a modern audience, would be like, okay, she doesn't fit in for that reason. Um, And playing with that alternate. Yes,
0: there are so many reasons. So many reasons that she didn't right. fit in. Um. So then I had to do the deep dive because I needed to find out who this Queen Charlotte was, what was their relationship, how did this all work out. So King George of American Revolutionary fame
1: and Hamilton it is fame. Fame. that King
0: George? <laughs> you and Hamilton fame. Um. <laughs> he really did marry a Charlotte from Germany who was 17 years old. When she came to England, she knew nothing about her husband to be. She was married off to him. There was no courtship whatsoever. This was as most Royal marriages were, um, a marriage of contract. So she shows up in England from Germany and she meets her 23rd, 23 year old husband on their wedding day. She knows nothing about him. And so there's this beautiful thing with the story as we see them meet each other for the first time, which is fascinating that the first time that they are introduced to each other, but to know that that's also a very historical fact. So that is, that is it. Um, we get a clue into his mental illness fairly early on. There's something wrong with him. We're not quite sure what's wrong with him. So we get a clue into his mental illness, which it hadn't turned into full-fledged psychosis until much later in his life, but there definitely were some problems. Um, again, we're looking at a mental health issue from a lens that is almost 300 years later that we understand things. So there's no way that we could study him and know exactly what was going on with him because we don't have him here. He's well,
1: up. and let's we just like, to inject in there too, our modern concept of mental health is barely 200 years old right? So, I mean, it wasn't until the 1950s that the first DSM was published. It wasn't until the 1800s that people were actually able to, beyond just putting someone in a hospital and experimenting on them, because they had something beyond, I mean, there was this assumption that there had to be something wrong with your physical body if you had symptoms of mental health, which we see represented in the way that George is treated by his doctor, right? But no matter what, yeah, with leeches. I mean, that being one and, of the and torture, is right? Like ice fats and and, <laughs> and burning, and like yeah. all these things. If we get your physical body, the the literal like chemistry in your physical body adjusted, which there's kind of some science there, especially if we're going to diagnose him as bipolar. But we'll get there. Um, maybe there's some truth there, but we're still way off. Like we're still not acknowledging that this is the organ that is causing things to be all over the place, right? Uh,
0: so I want to, and that we still are figuring out the brain,
1: right? I mean, we're we're not that far away from ancient Egypt when they would have thought that your your heart was your brain, and they would have just removed your brain when they, mum, excuse me, mummified you. So lots of layers there. But I think just another thing before we go any further, thinking about that, we need to acknowledge as far as this ultimate history. I know you're about to say George showed very historic like documented examples of mental breakdowns later on in his life like in his 50s but the show suggests that he's had this his whole life right? and because we're going to that really personal lens, yes, Um, because we're seeing it really through Charlotte's eyes as she's remembering her relationship with him it's suggesting that it's always been there and his whole life the entire monarchy as a whole has been covering his butt to make sure that that is something that doesn't impact his career as king. Right.
0: Right. So a few things about him that I found fascinating. He loved farming, that he was into the whole like farming thing. He was into growing things. He had gardens, he had animals, he did plowing, that he was a monarch with millions of dollars. And he had the entire
1: kingdom
0: at his behest. And yet he still, if you, if he got to pick what he wanted to do, he wanted to be out in the fields farming, which I just found fascinating both in the show and to find that that was something he was doing in real life. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, he built a telescope. In fact, the first time Charlotte meets him after the, they've been married and he deserts her and because he doesn't want her to know about his mental illness. And so he leaves her alone and he just figures, okay, we're married. Everything's good. Forgetting that part of the purpose of getting married as a Royal is that you're supposed to have an heir. Can't do that. If you're living in separate houses, and you never see each other. Um, so he built a telescope and she went to find him in his observatory. And it's, just this beautiful first scene when she is trying to get him to come home with her. And she's realizing that, you know, he's not having an affair. He's not doing anything else nefarious. He's just like staying in this observatory. That's where he feels safe and that's where he wants to be.
1: Well, and let's clarify real quick. The details Uh, you're bringing up, these are real historical facts that were recorded about the real King George, right? So that were folded into the show. He he actually, the real King George did love farming which is interesting then considering his relationship with agriculture. And he loved space. Yes. He was fascinated with science. So this is a king who was very well-versed. It wasn't just how do I rule my people and get money from them. He is how do I advance my country? And I'll be honest, I clapped him as queer for like the first three episodes.
0: (laughs) Right? I was like, like, that's got to be what it it is." is. Nope. That wasn't it.
1: He just likes space. And like, hey, no judgment. Really but like, you do you, boo. So I was just like, this is going to be real interesting. How is this going to happen? Because we know also that historically, they had a lot of kids. They bre- literally bred like rabbits. Yeah. She was literally pregnant. I'm saying as the yeah. pregnant person in this podcast for two decades of her life. And when she wasn't pregnant, she, <laughs> she was blood. getting ready to be pregnant again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know. I, it just was mind boggling to me. Um, I'm going to get, and I'm going to get back to that, that part in a minute. So he did have health, mental health issues and there were probably some questions during the American revolution. And, you know, because he lost the Americas or he lost at least the United States. He did not lose Canada, but he lost the United States um, in the revolutionary war. And so, you know, I've always had this very American view of King George. He was standing in the way, right? And since he was standing in the way, that was kind of it. Um, But he didn't really start exhibiting his mental health issues right until he was in his 50s. is when it really became impossible to hide it from everyone else. So we don't know for sure because obviously the Royals aren't going to keep good track of this, right. right? Because they don't want, they write history. They don't want people to know what was wrong with their Which people, is interesting with, though. With the, yeah, the
1: records that were kept of his like psychotic breaks were, as we see in the show, manic episodes and sexual deviance, specifically for him uh, d- displays in public displays of nudity uh, were happening by his fifties, which again, interesting. Like we see, early signs of that in the show. So suggesting maybe this was always there, which plays again, we're going to go further into that, but that plays again into this deeper idea of mental health issues like this. Don't just pop up overnight. They develop over time. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And they are there. Um, they started living apart in 1804, which is significant. I'm going to get to why that's significant in a minute. Um, he was 66 but they finally started living apart because it wasn't safe for charlotte anymore them being in the same living quarters was no longer safe for her because he was unpredictable and because he was unpredictable they had to then separate and you get kind of this hint of this in the show because one of the very first scenes we see was with the older queen charlotte the queen charlotte that we all know from bridgerton is she's coming out and she wants to know what's happened with the king. And so you're I'm thinking, oh, he's been off at war. Like <laughs> he's off at war and he was fighting, but that's not it. She is just kind of in a waiting game to see how much longer her husband's gonna be yeah, alive so and really he's what dead. his mental health yeah. is like. But we don't figure that out until the very end. And yeah, we don't know that until the very end. Um and she died in 1818 before he died. Uh, he died in 1820. He lost the throne to his son in 1811 because it became pretty clear by that point that he could no longer rule. Like he just could not do the job anymore, and so his son took over as Prince Regent before he became King George the Fourth. So before his father died, he became King George the Fourth. So the other really important story plot. Piece and the other important historical piece is yes they did have fifteen children, thirteen of them lived until adulthood. Um, it's fascinating that one of the the one of the storylines in Queen Charlotte is that she's just trying to get her children married off because what good is a royal line if nobody has more children and she has thirteen of them, so someone needs to have a royal baby and there are a lot of royal babies running around apparently, but none of them are legit. So she needs there to be a legitimate royal baby that they can pass the throne along to. And eventually that's where we get queen Victoria. Um, But it just takes a decade or two more before we get queen Victoria. Uh, But eventually one of her children did have a legitimate child that she was able, that they were able to pass the throne along to then. So the line did not end the royal line did not end with her 13 yeah. children. But yeah, they had babies like rabbits. And there's a lot to indicate, like a lot of historical record to indicate that these two were like the opposite of a lot of royal couples they were madly and deeply in love with each other and if there's anything to that tells me they're madly and deeply in love with each other it's the 15 children well and because there is no way (laughs) no way that they would have had 15 children and she would have as a queen would have willingly had 15 children if she did not like her husband's company
1: but victoria continues that story right victoria and albert are another great love story from uh, the British monarch. They were madly in love with each other. They had many children. Again. They had a lot of very convenient marriages as far as expanding the British Empire. But um, uh-huh. I think that uh-huh. just adding to, which you have kind of alluded to, but adding to this idea then of everything we know about this alternate history, ultimately their marriage is called the Great Experiment, right? Which is, one, can they exist as a foreigner couple, but two, can they exist as a biracial couple? And therefore, that adds, I think, even more weight to why Charlotte is so desperate to continue her line with George. It's not just that they loved each other. It's not just that her job as queen is to continue the royal line. It's, we worked so effing hard to make this, this love, this marriage, this monarchical position, valid in the midst of so much diversity. Diversity against her, diversity against his mental health and his own limitations. You guys, my children, you can't let that die. Our hard work, you can't let that die just because you guys can't figure out who properly you need to have sex with. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think I found it fascinating just that her relationship with her children is in the show is so... I don't even know if tense is the right word to say at the, near the end. In, I think it's the last episode. Her one of her sons. Yeah, yeah it's distance probably the right word because when one of her sons comes up to her and is trying to talk to her about her obsession with an heir, and they're like, "We've been trying," and she doesn't even realize that one of her daughters has lost multiple children, that many of them had had miscarriages. So there were many legitimate children that had been miscarried, and she didn't even know that there had been lost babies. Wow um her son george had lost a child and it had been like he was grief-stricken and she just was kind of like oh i'm sorry can we get another baby like she's she's so distant from it all because she had given all of her love and her energy to her husband she had kind of forgotten to give her love and her energy to her children and he says you were our queen you were our mother you were our queen and we see that through the whole series her job as queen is to get them married off and to get a royal heir. So she is from morning, new, morning, new, night. She is the queen that has her job, and even when she's with her children, she is
1: working. Well, at and her that's job. visually, we never see her holding her children after they're born. We never see her raising her children. We see her as the queen who, after her one legitimate grandchild has died, is basically like, great. Where's my next legitimate grandchild? That's the only conversation she's having. Yeah. We see her as a woman in her 60s-ish, right? Speaking to her adult children. And then we see her pregnant with their first child with George. And like that, those are the only iterations of motherhood we see from her. So just yeah, definitely super, super interesting the way that they present Charlotte. The fact that the story is told from Charlotte's perspective. As you're saying, like there's so much that, that of the true story of George that was brought into the story, but it's humanized because it's told through Charlotte's perspective.
0: Absolutely, right? Yeah. So, which is I I think is beautiful storytelling. I, I really, <laughs> you know, when you said let's do an episode on Queen Charlotte, I was like, well, I really enjoyed Bridgerton, but I don't know that it's really <laughs> does
1: it have the, that's the that's that's that' think
0: <laughs> that. yeah what's the literary merit to that right and i mean i thoroughly enjoyed it it was a lot of fun to watch and it it had i also agree there were lots of steamy moments but there were also some beautiful storytelling moments as well um but queen charlotte had a great mix whole nother level i feel it really did it was a totally different level because the story it, it was about the story and all the steaminess was about the two of them which was always about building the tension between them before they finally say, I love you. And then a total surrender to each other in a a lot of very beautiful, because they really did surrender to each other. It wasn't her surrendering to him. He surrendered his vulnerabilities to her in very beautiful ways too. So
1: I think, I mean, the Bridgerton universe as a whole plays with the question of what does it mean to love someone? And yeah. they've done that by adding in different ways that we alienate each other visually, specifically through race and culture. But then I think Queen Charlotte, you see, it's not this initial you know, enemies to lovers story. It's not this initial battle of wits. What, what's so powerful is, I mean, we see, because then we do also get to see this very intimate perspective of George. And we, we do get a beautiful queer love story through their footman. I really want to know what happened to George's footman, by the way. the fact, that we never find that out. I'm like, okay, but did you get love, too? Uh, to Charlotte's footman, who's yeah, still with out. her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, with all of that, I you see George's perspective of the only way I can love, actually, the only power I have, the control I have in my life, the only way I can love someone is to leave them. And, and Charlotte yeah. <laughs> actually has to teach him, no, the way you love someone is you don't let them go. Through any form of adversity, you don't let them go. You face it together. And the amount of times that it goes from, like, the visual distance of them on the screen to them holding hands and the deep intimacy of separate from see-me scenes even, wow. then they're constantly seeing, they're touching each other in public. It is, we are a unit. We come together. When you speak to me, you speak to us
0: which is why I cried in the very last scene when they're underneath the bed and they're they're in their older age and they're underneath the bed and she's just trying to reconnect with her husband who has completely lost his mind. Like he, he's, he is separated from everyone and she just wants to have that moment with him because she's also got really great news. They're going to have an heir and that is she needs to share it with the person who needs to hear it. And so they're under the bed and they touch hands and they're able to look at each other and he's able to finally see her again because even though he's been blinded by everything else, he's able to look at her and see her, and yeah, it's it's a beautiful moment. But that does also then go into mental health in it. like what, how do we get to this moment where the only way she can talk to her husband is underneath?
1: Well, so bed. I mean, it felt like a very notebook moment. Let's be honest, that ending and. Uh, you know, anytime that the reason that Noah tells this story is because it is the story. Um, it's how he brings his love back to him, how he breaks through her dementia. But um, so I think I, I wanted to acknowledge like that illusion, I think is is there to some extent. Uh, but I think there's also definitely something to be said about, yeah, this concept of of reality. And actually, before I go even further into that, my brain immediately jumped to, we haven't even addressed just how amazing the casting was of these younger and older iterations of these people. Because so we see a lot of, we see a, like most of the younger Bridgerton cast uh, as far as the adults that are in the first two seasons, we see them as teens to young adults. And then we also see them as their older adult selves. And I just like, chef's kiss. I wish that they could have gotten an Emmy for it because it's so well done, I think.
0: Yeah. It was, and it was interesting to see some of those other subplots too. Yes. I enjoyed the, the other subplots that we got and the background and the connection between certain characters that we didn't mm-hmm. know was there mm-hmm. until you watch it. So you'd have to watch it to see what it, Right, and the term are. tending but. the
1: garden has been thoroughly ruined for me thanks to this show. But, uh, uh, <laughs> 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 conversation but I'm um, yeah. back to mental health <laughs> uh, so we've already brought up the fact that mm-hmm. I just I think I wanted to go into just a little bit of interesting speculation there's been a lot of ink spilled over the years trying to diagnose George later on in his life and really kind of the three main diagnoses that come to the surface interestingly some historians believe that he suffered from acute porphyria had to bring that one up because hey porphyria that's a very literary name right a Porphyria's Lover by Robert Browning it was one of my favorite poems to teach students because that's creepy. Uh, but this, just if you don't know about acute porphyria personally, excuse me, it was a genetic disease that impacts oxygen flow throughout a person's bloodstream, which therefore, can it leads to lots of other physical issues, but one of the main ones can be basically a mental breakdown. Since then, a lot of historians have been like, there's actually no proof of that because it would have had to show up earlier in life. But this show begs the question, how long were they keeping the secret of George's mental health issues, right? The, the crown as a whole, right? Yeah. Uh, diagnosis number two, and I think the show most embraces this one, is some form of mania. So we definitely see him having manic breaks from reality. And those manic episodes get longer over time, to the point that then we see Charlotte as a much older adult trying to reach her husband, George. And the only way she can do that is to come back to what was his safe space when he had a manic episode, which was under the bed, right? Like I can't, the whole universe is terrifying to me. Uh, You talk about how the stars were talking to him. So I have to hide under the bed where no one can see me. Right. Uh, Interestingly, even though like our modern concept of mental health only dates back to the 1800s, Some version of manic depressive disorder, what we know today in some form as bipolar disorder, can actually be traced back to Hippocrates in ancient Greece. There are records of people being diagnosed with manic episodes back then. Uh, But then kind of interestingly, it wasn't categorized separate from depression, this idea of bipolar disorder, until 1980 with the third issue of the DSM. So, again, our understanding of bipolar disorder is still very new. And I think Bridgerton holds very beautifully how we interpret history through a modern lens, all of our different modern elements that we hold when we look back at history, while also trying to honor history in some form, whether it be through fashion or language or family dynamics or whatever that be.
0: Well, because there's always this danger, right, when you look at history of only seeing it through the lens in which you're living right now. And And we do this in our English classes, because whenever we bring history into our English classes, there gets to be this question, okay, but why would they act that way? Why didn't they understand this? Why didn't they do this instead? And you're like, but you have to stop looking at it. You know stuff. You know things that they didn't know because you know things that they didn't know like I get this with it's like, I'm teaching monsters right so like I, this always comes up but when I teach Dracula they're like they're giving blood transfusions and they didn't know about blood typing I'm like mm-hmm. no which is fascinating because blood typing was discovered like two or three years after mm-hmm. Dracula was written so it was really close before they were discovering that blood typing was a thing but they're like Lucy gets blood transfusions from four different people she should have died anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> and but they, I have to try to remind them that what we know is so different than what authors and historians and people knew at a specific
1: time. And doesn't that – there's so, touch point, though, of what a classic is, though, because there's still the reality that vampirism is based a little bit on a base understanding of bloodborne pathogens. There's a really basic reality that mm-hmm. the concept the, – the medical basis for washing hands – wasn't proven until bacteria was discovered essentially right which would would have been the 1800s and then we still didn't fully understand how it was Mm -hmm. passed from one person to the other so i think lots of layers of that is the reason that a piece like dracula or a piece like frankenstein which still asks these questions what does it mean to be human frankenstein i think kind of right before the evolution of our modern concept mental health asks this idea of what does it mean for a brain to develop What does it mean for a personality to exist? How does trauma impact brain development? So that actually leads to the third potential diagnosis for George, which is borderline personality disorder, which is an even younger diagnosis than bipolar disorder. has a lot of similar traits, but I think the biggest thing that you need to know that's different about borderline personality disorder is it can be caused by early trauma versus bipolar disorder is known to be a chemical imbalance in the brain. Um, bipolar disorder can be treated with medication. The only treatment really for bipolar disorder that is your borderline personality disorder, excuse me, that is guaranteed to work is talk therapy. um, And which would be a lifelong commitment for someone who has that diagnosis. So um, no matter what it is, is they're both noted by mood dysregulation. One of the biggest things that's different about borderline personality disorder is it's often short mood dysregulation that gets longer over time what's good about this show because you don't have like a historian in the final episode of charlotte being like now as we look back at king george and we know that you have <laughs> it's not a documentary we don't get that we keep we stay in the human realm of these people interacting with each other but because we don't right. have that that distance of like therefore he had this we're left with the same type of skepticism the point is not what did he suffer from? It's the fact that he suffered and how did people treat him in response to his suffering?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that is what I find. One of the many things I found fascinating about the entire show is just how did people kind of skirt around the issue? Cause there are a lot of people skirting around it. How did they respond? How did his mother respond when he had an episode and she tried to hide it. Right. So she's trying to hide that he has this issue and these episodes. And then you have the doctor who is supposedly treating him and is actually torturing him. And it's so horrible to watch. And yet, you know that that was common treatment that people were getting treated that way all the time, because they didn't understand that just, you, you can't just knock some mental illness out of you (laughs) and it can actually give you more mental illness to have it to be knocked around like that because you're going to get some kind of PTSD from all of that right so it just to see that played out on the screen and as she as Charlotte starts to understand that she's not the sole solution for George but there is something about like a person cannot solve their their loved one's mental illness a person cannot be the cure for someone's mental illness but there is something to be said for having relation close relationships that allow you to one be yourself because she's like fine if he needs to stand out in the garden naked whatever we'll just let him have his episodes and then he can come back in there's something about having someone who is willing to stand by you while you go through this and then bring you back in as opposed to people that are just going to ignore you and deny you any kind of intimate relationship or friendship right. in that moment.
1: Well, so two things based on what you were saying. One, I mean, it beautifully shows the burden of a partner of someone who struggles with mental health issues in that I mean, it's not like it's smooth sailing for Charlotte. She has to daily get up every day and say, I choose to support George and be there for George through this, not knowing it, when she wakes up every day, which version of George she's going to be seeing. But, two, I mean, we, we also need to acknowledge as we're talking about the history of mental health, Bedlam Hospital was a very famous British hospital. I actually was just looking it up. It was founded as early as uh, the 1200s in England. But while it was considered the reason, it was actually Bethlehem Hospital, but it became known as Bedlam, which is a word synonymous with insanity or chaos. Because this is where people, if you were sent to bedlam, it was a death sentence. It was a place where you would be experimented on. So, I mean, even as we're saying you know, our modern concept of mental health come you know, is about 200 years old, treating people with mental health issues as human, who are treatable and are not just no longer human, <laughs> is still actually maybe a hundred years old concept. Not even that, if we're talking about the DSM only coming from the 1950s.
0: I mean, we talked about it with Of Mice and Men with our kids, yep. right? Just the way that Lenny gets treated in Of Mice and Men in the nineteen thirties. That's less than a hundred yep. years ago. And the fact that there were no options yep. for him. Absolutely no options. The option was he could be institutionalized in a situation like yep. Bedlam or he could be on the road with George. Like that that's all he has as an option for him. And yeah, We are seeing in very real time on screen just all the extremes. Like They show every extreme treatment that he possibly could have undergone. It's not like he would have been given all of those if he were going through a series of treatment. But to treat something that we now know is about the brain and brain chemistry and also personal response to trauma and experiences and it's just so complicated and to know that now how complicated it is and to see how it was treated for the longest time and it just yeah
1: it, it, it's heartbreaking but it, right it's and, and that's again if we're talking about mm-hmm. bridgerton what is the literary merit of the story one it's something is determined a classic because of its timelessness because we can say there is a historical lens that clarifies why people this way but there's also a modern lens where we can say oh wow people still kind of act this way and we need to acknowledge the battle of humanizing mental health is still a modern battle we're fighting our understanding of how to support people with mental health issues is still a modern battle we're fighting we talked about that so much with dear Evan Hansen and several other pieces but then the humanity of Queen Charlotte specifically I, I guess Excuse me. what makes it so powerful is that Charlotte knows directly what it is to face adversity as she is a foreigner in a foreign land, visually, language-wise, culture-wise. I mean, there's so many ways that she she comes in thinking that I am marrying an equal. I am a scholarly woman. And George eventually treats her that way, but no one else in society is willing to treat her.
0: Well, she's royalty. But she's not British royalty. Right. <laughs> right? Like, there's, there's this idea that to be... On equal footing you have to come from this bloodline and from this family and from this culture and she's not and she's not and so it, it's a lot of very fascinating blurring of lines in Queen Charlotte that I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed I thought great. it was great thank you for making <laughs> me
1: watch it as we tend to say <laughs> in our lit <laughs> thing space one of us thanks the other for like you sat me down you made me do it I guess it was yeah. good for me <laughs> So yeah. on yeah. that note, Sarah, Absolutely. talk to me. I think that's a good transition point. What are you enjoying right now in other media?
0: I recently listened to Viola Davis's Finding Me because we've talked about how much fun it is to listen to a memoir by the person as they write it. And um, I really, really enjoyed it. It is beautifully written. I know we joke about with celebrities, right? Are they ghostwriting? Is it ghostwritten or did they write it? Um, she had an English major, so or she was an English major in college. So I, it's possible that she did most of the writing for the book. But her story is fascinating. Her background is fascinating. It's beautifully told. She weaves in the hero's journey. You know how we both feel about the hero's journey. But she weaves in Joseph Campbell and the whole concept of the hero's journey into her story. And so I highly recommend it. And again with memoirs, let her read it to you. It's great. Um, and the third season of Upload, it just finished all uploading (laughs) to Amazon Prime. And we really enjoyed the third season. And when we found out the season finale was a season finale, we were like, No. Um, but upload is just this fascinating concept of a show that you can before you die get your consciousness uploaded to like this web space so your consciousness is uploaded but your body either is frozen or you can get a new body or like it's this whole like it's dystopian because it's like what would happen if people could live forever by uploading their consciousness and holding on to their consciousness and it's taken a lot of really fun twists and turns and I highly recommend it. If you have Amazon prime, I know that there are some who don't have a financial reasons and some people don't have it because they want to not support Jeff Bezos. I support that, but we, there's just several on Amazon prime that we still enjoy. So we keep it. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been enjoying a lot of other stuff, too. But that's what I've been enjoying most recently. What about you? Well, so I have to ask
1: real quick. I always say Viola Davis. Does she say her name is Viola Davis in the memoir? That's a I, – I, I'm just yeah. curious. I didn't know if you – I think that's just Viola.
0: Yeah. So she mentions her mom saying her name. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Good for me to know. Something for me to change. So. And then uh, the other thing, just as someone who has some experience now with ghostwriting – uh, there, it is important to acknowledge there are many different levels of ghostwriting. So there also could have just been someone who's advising her on the structure yeah. of the book and she could have done most of the writing. Totally get that. If you got the money to spend, why not? But as far as things that I've been enjoying, there is a, I am back to some graphic novels. I always enjoy a good graphic novel. And one of the really interesting ones I read recently is called Flung Out of Space. I need to look up again. It told the historical story of, um, Patricia Highsmith, who is actually a very famous author, but there are layers to her story. She actually started her career as a comic book writer. She would have known Stan Lee. So, I mean, she's kind of in that era of, like, early comic books. And then she's also a woman, a queer woman, who was actually very homophobic, so, like, lots of self-hate. Uh, was not a good person, right? Like, I mean, it was very anti-Semitic. Part of why Stanley changed his name is because he was Jewish, and so Stanley was a more of a vanilla name. And like she had people who she wouldn't call them by their names because they had a very clearly Jewish name. So, I mean, it w- was not a good or kind person, but then is also in this very male-dominant world, um, especially in her career. And she's trying to figure out how to be considered a serious author, while also she herself doesn't take herself seriously because she's going through so many layers of just mental health whatever you want to call that mental health breakdown self-hate all the things so um yeah it was just really yeah. interestingly very well done um, the art in it was very very beautiful again if we hear toddler background noise there is a Toddler basketball game going on here just adjacent to me. You guys didn't know all the joys that you're missing. <laughs> uh, then the other show, uh, we recently got access to Max, so we've been coming back to a show. I think the second season is a few years old at this point, but um, my partner and I really enjoyed Gentle the first season of Gentleman Jack, which is uh, the story of the first – it's based on the journals of the first – Common law lesbian marriage in England based on her journals. So, um, Anne Lester, I think, is the actual character's name. But then, uh, okay. Gentleman Jack is, is a song that kind of plays with that idea of um, a queer woman, a highborn lady of renown. It's, it's a song, a Gentleman Jack song. So, it, it plays with all of that. But it's really fun just kind of nod to and playing with what it, what would queer culture have looked like in early Victorian England which I mean we see some of that in Queen Charlotte maybe even a few generations before but this is playing with it. A, yeah. a similar I mean it's based on actual historical evidence but it's excuse me he, trying to humanize the history as it's playing off of the events of her journal and dramatizing it so I've really been enjoying that
0: okay I think we've been doing a pretty good job of trying this to try. Yeah. New stuff look at us
1: trying new things. Look at new stuff. As Glenn and Joy would say, we can do hard things. We can try new things, all the stuff.
0: Oh yes. And this week, um, unfortunately I'm doing, going to be doing it without you, but I will be at NCTE on Friday. So pay attention to our socials. And if you listen to this after I do the presentation at NCTE, that's fine. Um, but then you're getting all caught up on that and uh, or maybe you're a new listener because you were at NCTE and you saw me do the presentation on pop culture, but we are going to desperately miss Alicia. So we're excited about new things and trying new things and moving forward with the podcast in next the second half of the season after Christmas break. So after the holidays, all the holidays, it's, a beautiful, and after baby say, it's a
1: beautiful season of a lot of new for both of us. And yes, I will miss being at NCTE and seeing all of you who are going to be coming to our session, but please don't forget. You can always find us on Facebook and Instagram at lithic Think Podcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter where you will hear, <coughs> wow, this cough that never goes away. Hopefully you don't hear that on the Subtext newsletter. You will read all sorts of ideas beyond just the podcast of how you can take our Lit thing ideas and apply them to the classroom or to your everyday life.
0: And while we're taking a podcast break until 2024, early 2024 we're still gonna we'll, we'll let you know when that next episode will drop we're gonna make sure that we have some new content on the Substack newsletter so that you know what we're doing and so that you get some of our favorites when it comes to holiday movies and music and all that jazz so we'll, we'll just really just enjoy the holidays and the start of winter before we get back from all the holiday movies and have some new episodes for you so anyway look forward to see everybody uh get signed up and this is sarah and alicia signing off keep on thinking.